Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gift of fellowship that we have in your body. We are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, by whom we are brought into your presence and through whom the reconciliation was made so that we could be called children of God. We praise you and we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We have made our transition from Genesis into 1 John, and it might seem like a bit of a dislocated jump, but I assure you, Genesis is the foundation of all things, and so it is very difficult to understand 1 John, especially these first four verses, until we have understood the creation, the fall, how God judges and saves, and how God protects. And so here in 1 John, we've already established the difficulty in making an outline, but we have a preliminary outline focusing on some of the main themes, some of the major topics that John is going to tackle. In this first section, we're tackling life, light, and love. This morning especially, we are going to talk about life and what exactly our life is now that we are Christians. And for John, the very foundation of that new life is the incarnation of Christ. Without the incarnate God, we have no hope of life. We needed a human savior. It was man who sinned. It was man who fell. It was a man who needed to hang on the cross and shed his blood after living a perfect life so that he could be a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. It is a man who must sit on the throne of this universe. God created man to rule on his behalf, and man was not faithful in doing so in Adam. We need a new federal head for humanity, and we find that in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. But what John is going to tackle most in his first epistle is our present need for an incarnate Christ. Our present need as we are in the flesh as we have two natures, a sin nature and a new nature in Christ. How are we to do anything in the flesh, not except by the Spirit of God? Just as the incarnate Christ came and emptied himself and performed uh, all of his works for God through the work of the Spirit, so we've been given the Spirit. And so the incarnate Christ is an analogy for us today of how we are to live in the body of Christ. We have flesh, but we do not work by the flesh. We work by the spirit that indwells us. And in order to do that, we need fellowship. We need to be walking by the spirit. And so John begins with the importance of the incarnation. He begins with his witness, with his apostolic authority. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, John, much like Moses, is an incredible writer. Now, he's writing in his second language as well. In fact, this may have even been his third language since he likely spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Now he is writing in Greek, but thankfully, he's had about 60 or 70 years to perfect his craft. John was the last writer of scripture, and so he has a very polished sermon-style epistle that he gives to us. And the rhetorical force of this first verse should remind us of the importance, not of our activity in proclaiming Christ, 
but in who Christ is so that we can proclaim him. And so we don't even come to the verb in this verse until we get to verse 3. He gives us all the objects, that thing which was from the beginning, that thing which we heard and we saw with our eyes, which we looked at, which we touched with our hands. That is what is most important. John is giving us empirical evidence that corroborates what God revealed. He starts with the most important, the thing which he heard, but this is all what he is going to proclaim, as verse 3 tells us. This is the apostolic message. This is what the apostles teach, and he is going to tell us why. But we start with what was from the beginning. This can be rather tricky because this is not a technical term. This doesn't have one meaning every time you encounter it in Scripture. Even in the book of 1 John, it has various meanings, where we will see that Satan was a liar from the beginning. This will go all the way back to creation in the fall. In 1 John 1.1, we see that the beginning was before the universe, that Jesus pre-existed the universe. In, first, or in Genesis 1.1, which we saw about 12 months ago now, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of the universe. When he created space, time, and matter, and he began to work within eternity. John 1.1, as we remember, actually, if you came to our Tuesday nights, Life of Messiah, you'll remember that this is an illusion to Genesis 1.1. He wants to remind us of the beginning of creation so that he can place Jesus Christ, the Word, before that creation. In the beginning was the Word. This is in the imperfect tense, meaning it was in existence already at the time of the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. We have a beginning as the universe, a beginning of the pre-existent Christ, the beginningless beginning. And now we come to 1 John 1, 1, and once again, he is making allusions back to what he has already written. What was from the beginning, what we heard and what we have seen, these are in opposition to each other. They're modifying each other. That beginning that John is speaking of here is a new creation. It is a new kind of thing, but it is the beginning of fulfillment of all that God has promised in the Old Testament. The beginning here is the incarnation of Christ. What was from the beginning, when that time where God once again steps into creation and does something brand new, where he himself takes on human flesh so that he could draw us back to him. And so John focuses on that witness. That is of utmost importance for John, moving from coming into the family of God in the gospel of John, now into being in fellowship and enjoying being part of the family of God in his first epistle. Some have commented that these four different verbs that John uses, hearing, seeing, looking at, and touching, moves from the least effective to the most effective form of witness, but that's actually backwards. To hear is actually the most important form of witness here for John. 
because this is dealing with the difference between special and general revelation. To hear God's word is far more valuable than to touch the wounds of Christ. To have that revelation of God takes away the need to interpret what you are seeing and what you are touching. God does the divine interpretation for us, and we are to believe him. So what was it that John heard? He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was likely there when John baptized Jesus and a voice spoke out of heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the special revelation of God that John heard. John was one of only three present at the transfiguration of Christ. When again, a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All that Jesus taught as well. John was right there with him. John 13 through 17 records one of the longest discourses of Christ on his last night before the crucifixion. John was there to witness it. He recorded it. That was what he heard. And he was a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was a prophet of God. He had the direct revelation right from John. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, one being John the Apostle. He looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. They heard the voice of the prophet, and they followed Jesus. This was what John heard. But Jesus says in John 5.36, when talking to some Pharisees, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. Jesus points out four different witnesses to his Messiahship there in John 5. But here he says, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they testify about me, that the Father has sent me. Because Jesus does the works of the Father, what John saw what John saw Jesus do also becomes part of that witness that he as an apostle was able to testify to. He saw the works of Jesus. Specifically, he saw miracles that only the Messiah could do. Miracles that no other prophet had ever been able to do. He healed a Jewish leper for the first time in the history of national Israel. That had never before occurred. For the first time, Leviticus 13 was put into practice, where the priests would have to confirm the healing of a Jewish leper. Jesus sent this leper to the priests in order that that would be a testimony. John was also present when Jesus exercised a mute demoniac, a demon that caused muteness. The Pharisees would rely on receiving the name of a demon in order to exercise it. They believed it impossible to exercise someone whose demon caused them not to be able to speak. But this was no difficulty for Jesus. In fact, immediately after the transfiguration, when he came down the mountain, he encountered the rest of the disciples who were trying to exercise a mute demoniac. He said, this can only come out by prayer. But does Jesus pray? 
No, he exercises the demon on his authority. Because for the disciples, they have to seek God's authority so that God can exercise that demon. But Jesus is God. John watched Jesus perform miracles that only God could do. And John witnessed Jesus heal a man born blind. Another miracle that had no precedent in Jewish history. These miracles which were reserved by God as testaments for his son. So that the blind man himself even came to understand that this was the Messiah. Because he said, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. John witnessed this. John walked with Jesus and he saw Jesus both in the flesh and operating as God. Now there's two different sight verbs here, and it does move from general observation into a witness, into a study, perhaps you might say. This is more than simply seeing something. This is something that makes you a perfect, perfectly qualified witness to gaze at or to stare at even. And he also touched the Lord. What did John see? He and Peter, after the resurrection, went to the tomb and they saw it empty. Peter had rushed inside. John sat gazing from outside the tomb. He says that they had not believed what Jesus had said about himself. But from that point forward, John began to believe. He gazed at the evidence of the resurrection. And then he saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus appeared to them in the upper room when they were hiding from the Jews. Jesus appeared and they all had great joy. Joy is going to be the point that John gets to at the end. How do we get that joy that they shared when they looked at the face of the resurrected Christ? For John's audience in 90 AD, 60 years after Christ, how do they share in that fellowship? Why did John wait so long to write this book? Had he done this back in 40 or 50 AD, many people there still may have seen the resurrected Christ. But in 90 AD, few of any who John is speaking to had seen the resurrected Christ. And yet he is going to draw them into fellowship with himself. Just as he saw the resurrected Christ, so they get to share in the same fellowship. And not only that, but John touched the resurrected Christ. We know that he had touched Jesus before his crucifixion, that he even leaned back on his chest at the upper room. But when Jesus appeared a second time to the disciples in the upper room, Thomas requested to touch the Lord in order to believe. We know that John already believed. For Thomas, he is lightly chided for not having believed without the least evidence here. The evidence that a blind man needs to touch because he couldn't see, because he wouldn't listen. 
John was a little further ahead than Thomas. John believed when he saw, when he saw the empty tomb. He believed the words of God. Thomas wanted to touch. John likely touched him as well. But this was not a touch of unbelief moving towards belief. But this was a touch of corroboration. Strengthening his faith. This was no apparition as the Docetists taught. The heretic Serinthus in Ephesus was teaching that John was just, or that Jesus was just an apparition, that he appeared like a man, but he was not a man. John touched the Lord. This was not out of unbelief, but belief. Importantly, these actions were done by means of the eyes, by means of the hands. He is not speaking spiritually here. He physically and literally saw and touched the body of Jesus Christ in the flesh with proof that he was God by the works that he was doing. And so what does that mean for John? What is he proclaiming? His proclamation concerns then the word of life. Once again, John is making allusions back to what he has written already. In some Bibles, this W is capitalized. It should not be. But the L perhaps should be. In John's gospel, the word was his name for Christ, his name for Jesus when he opened up the gospel. Here he is drawing on what he built in the gospel and he is adding to it. Just as he did in the opening prologue of the gospel, he moves from the word to life and to light. So he is doing that here in his epistle. But it's not word that John is going to emphasize here. It's the life. The life is the one who becomes his subject. He is talking to us about the life, the life of that man. And the word here serves as the sub or as the message. You see, the incarnation of Christ, we cannot separate the message from the man. If you lose one, you don't have the other. And so we need to understand that Jesus actually came in the flesh in order that we can grow deeper, in order that we can understand who Jesus is, what God has done for us, and how we, being brought into the family of God, are able to operate with him. Importantly, in the incarnation, we see that we were made in God's likeness. And so God has been able to incarnate himself. We were built for fellowship with God from the very beginning. We were given attributes that correspond to God's, such as speech. We are able to communicate with him. Idols have none of this. The witnesses that John was able to present about the incarnation of Christ You cannot do that for idols. Psalm 115 says their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. And noses, but they cannot smell. These idols cannot have fellowship with man. 
man was built for fellowship with God. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Trusting in idols is insanity. Trusting in Christ draws us into intimate fellowship because we can and because God has made it possible. Our life reflects his life, and it should by our actions as well. Genesis 1.26, when God created man to rule over the universe, he created him in his image because he knew that one day his son would be taking on that flesh. It had to be compatible. From the very beginning of creation, we see this was part of God's plan. In Genesis 3.15, when he promises a redeemer, he speaks of one born of a woman, the seed of a woman. He knew that his son would come into the flesh by natural birth. In Isaiah 7.14, we learn that it would be by the birth of a virgin. In Luke 1, 34, 35, we see that the virgin would become with child by means of the Holy Spirit. As we trace the incarnation of Christ through scripture, we see that it is no plan B. It is the purpose of creation so that God can bring ultimate glory to himself. We see that in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The purpose of the incarnation was to bring glory to God. And Jesus, just as he taught his disciples, by becoming last, he became first. By becoming a servant to mankind, he became the head of mankind. And indeed, this flesh and this divinity became one. John experienced those four verbs. John experienced Jesus in the flesh and in his deity. He has firsthand empirical evidence and revelatory evidence about Jesus' incarnation. Jesus is God with real flesh and blood. And in this, we come to understand another important doctrine that John is going to plant his feet on firmly. This is called the hypostatic union. This is a big fancy word that just means essence or substance. The union of Jesus, God's substance with his human substance, where he had two natures in one. Jesus is undiminished divinity and he is perfect humanity. We can't even say this about ourselves. We are not perfect humanity. We are not humanity as we were created, intended to be. We are humanity corrupt by sin, but he is not. He is perfect humanity. 
He has two distinct natures which have been eternally united. He did not give up the flesh in the resurrection. He perfected the flesh in the resurrection. It is absolutely imperative. It is necessary for Jesus Christ to exist in the flesh today so that we can have fellowship with God. The hypostatic union is the basis for the spiritual life. Without it, we have no hope of living godly lives because Jesus demonstrated in the flesh that we could if we depended on God and let God's power work through us rather than depending on the flesh. And so John moves to explain what he means by life, this word of life. Verse 2 is a parenthetical statement. It's adding information to what he already said. The life was manifested. It appeared. It was publicly displayed. And it was displayed in flesh. John saw this. What we have seen and what we testify and proclaim to you, the eternal life. Now notice John is not speaking in the first person singular, but in the first person plural. This is probably an editorial we focusing on him, but he is bringing the apostolic group along with him. This is what they have all gone out witnessing, testifying, and proclaiming. This is what they have taught. They have taught about the eternal life. And now we get a hint at where John is finally going where he is going by verse 4. This eternal life that was manifested in the flesh, flesh that we are accustomed to death. Hebrews 9 tells us that all men, or for all men, it is appointed to die once. For Jesus, he became the eternal life. That yes, he would die once, but eternal life existed in him. And it was with the Father. This is a focus for John now. He uses a special uh, preposition here, pros, instead of, I can't remember the other one, soon or para. He uses pros to speak of this intimate fellowship with the Father. Jesus, the incarnate God, had fellowship with the Father. And then that being which had fellowship with the Father was manifest to us so that we could have fellowship with him. This eternal life that John introduces in verse 2, he returns to. Remember, John goes in cycles, and each cycle he layers on information for us. When we get back to chapter 5, eternal life is going to be an emphasis for him. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is his son. This eternal life is one and the same with Jesus. And because of his love for us, he has humbled himself, taken on flesh, and come to dwell among us. We know that the son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Notice this fellowship is founded upon what we know. We grow closer in fellowship with God when we spend time in his word, 
when we believe that which the apostles wrote. The more we know about him, the more intimate we can become with him. The more we spend time reading his love letter to us, the more we grow to love him. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, and this is the true God and eternal life. This true God, this eternal life appeared on the earth, in the flesh, so that he could give us life. And Jesus says, I came that they may have life. This is accomplished when one believes in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But he didn't come just to give new life. Christ's work does not end with the work of salvation. This is his most important work but it continues so that we might have life more abundantly. This is life in fellowship with God. This is a new relationship, not as servants, but as friends. This is a relationship that is only possible because of the incarnation. And so John invites us to fellowship. John invites us to grow deeper in our faith, to grow deeper in intimacy with God. Not because we can, but because God has made us able. God has reached out his hand to us in his son. And so God has reached out in his son. So John can invite us to the same fellowship that he shares. Because of the long parenthetical, John reminds us of the witness from, his, from verse 1, what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you. So that, now this is, oops, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is a purpose statement. When a writer states their purpose, pay attention because that's how we should interpret what they write. The action that he is doing is proclaiming, teaching, explaining. And his reason for doing this is to bring the readers, you, into the fellowship which we, the apostles, share. And indeed, our, the apostles' fellowship, is with the Father. Now, this statement should floor us. How is this possible? For fellowship, we need something in common. Remember, fellowship isn't chatting about our day. Fellowship is growing in intimacy. It's partnership. It's based on something in common, and what does man have in common with God? Man has one thing in common with God, Jesus. Jesus is both a man and he is God. Without this, there can be no intimate fellowship. There can be servants. There cannot be friends. There cannot be mankind as children of God. Fellowship is possible on the basis of commonality. What can man have in common with God? Jesus, the God-man. Jesus is the object of our fellowship, both with God and with other believers, and he alone is our common ground. This is why John makes 
primary truth about Jesus. If you believe wrong things about Jesus, if you believe that he was not a God, if you believe that he was not a man, or if you believe that he was man and Christ came upon him at the baptism and left him in Gethsemane, as the Gnostics believed, you cannot have fellowship with the apostles, which means you cannot have fellowship with God. Now notice one crucial point. Who does God commission to write this epistle? It was not one of the 500 who witnessed Christ in his resurrection. It was not one of the 70 who Christ commissioned for service. It was not even one of the 12, though he was in that group. It wasn't Thomas who he had write this. And it wasn't even one of his three in most intimate fellowship. It was the apostle with whom he had the most intimate fellowship. This is the one who is inviting us to fellowship with God. It would be a testimony enough if it were Peter or if it were James who met a very untimely death, wouldn't have had time to write an epistle like this. He was busy growing the church in Jerusalem. But John, 60 years after this physical and present fellowship ended, extends this invitation to the next generation so that it could be permanently inscripturated so that we as well could read this. And we are just as dislocated from the time where Jesus Christ walked this earth, but we are not dislocated from fellowship with him. Because John has invited us into intimate fellowship with Jesus, the incarnate Christ. And it is only through Jesus. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so for the apostles to say we have fellowship with the Father means they must have come through Jesus the Son. You cannot have fellowship in the body of Christ unless you have commonality in Christ. Cannot be a Jehovah's Witness and have fellowship in the body of Christ. Cannot be a Mormon and have fellowship in the body of Christ. You may have believed at one time that Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross and been brought into the family of God. But you cannot share an intimate fellowship. You cannot enjoy that salvation without believing correctly about Jesus based on the apostolic witness. We have to agree and be in fellowship with the apostles because they are the link to our fellowship with Christ. They are that one step that brings us into step with Jesus. And so fellowship is practically growing in increased intimacy and partnership among those with whom you have commonality. This secondarily extends to the fellowship with believers, but it is primarily our fellowship with Christ. Our fellowship with one another, if it is not based on Christ, if it does not flow through and out of Christ, then it is not fellowship. It is a social club. And that is not what the church is. The church is a place for the family of God to come and grow. 
for the family of God to come and glorify God who has humbled himself in the person of Christ. This fellowship is with the Father and it is with his Son, Jesus Christ. And how is it possible? Remember, Jesus is perfect humanity. How can imperfect humanity then have fellowship with perfect humanity? Once again, it is the work of Christ. 2 Peter 1.4 By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers. That's the same word for fellowship. In the Greek, it's koinonia. So that we might become partakers, fellows of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. We have been invited not just to have fellowship with him in our current state, but to be brought to a different state to be made perfected humanity, not by our works, but by Christ's. So that when we gaze on Christ, just as John gazed on Christ, the other side, God is gazing on Christ. God is gazing lovingly on perfect humanity. And when we are in the body of Christ with him, we are able to be looked at by God though God cannot have any affiliation with sin. That's what John's going to move into dealing with in verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. But this necessarily is founded upon the doctrine of reconciliation. Jesus has made it possible for God to turn his face back to mankind. You see, when we sinned, we broke fellowship with God in the garden. We turned our back on God, and when we rebelled, he could not look at us. He had to cover us with a temporary atonement so that we could approach him on the basis of a blood sacrifice. But now our approach has been made permanent by the permanent atonement in Christ. So that in Jesus, he has made it possible for God to turn back towards us, to look at us through the covering of Christ. And so the only requirement then is for us to turn back and look at him. And as long as we keep our gaze on Jesus Christ, we are in fellowship. Colossians 1.19 For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. This means to make savable. Without Christ we are unsavable. having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, this is the opposite of fellowship. Though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you. He has made you savable, Jesus has, in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Not just Jesus, the human, but Jesus, the perfect, the sinless human. And 
undiminished divinity, makes fellowship possible on the basis of the incarnation and the reconciliation at the cross. Now, John gave us his purpose statement for why the apostles share this witness about Christ, to drive them into deeper fellowship, to invite them to fellowship with God. But why specifically are they writing? Now, it's pretty much a mixed bag in interpreters of whether they will call 1 John 1.4 the purpose statement of 1 John or whether they will call 1 John 5.13 the purpose statement. Often, 1 John 5.13 is simply an easier purpose statement, the confidence that we might have in eternal life. But here is purpose statement, I believe, for the book of 1 John is right at the beginning. 1 John 1.4, and if we interpret some other tricky passages properly, this becomes no problem at all. This is not inviting people to be saved. This is written to saved people. 1 John 5.13 assures us of such. This is inviting us to fellowship. And so John says we write these things, or these things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Now, there is a change that is almost undetectable here except in context. This verse marks a transition in the way John is going to speak to his writers. Until the invitation was handed out in verse, in verse 3, the we was a dissociative we. It was separated from the readers. John spoke for himself and the apostles. But when he invites us into fellowship with him, he now makes a change. And for the rest of this chapter, the rest of this thought, he is going to use we, not just of the apostles, but of the readers as well, because they are in fellowship now with the apostles. And so when Peter or when Paul writes, when John writes that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is not speaking only of the apostles. He is not speaking only of the readers, but of the fellowship now that we share because of Jesus Christ. And so John's purpose in writing 1 John, though confidence and assurance and salvation is part, it is not the whole. The whole is so that we might enjoy that same joy that the apostles have in fellowship with God. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete, not just the joy of the apostles, but the joy of those who are in fellowship with God through the testimony of the apostles. We'll close with this verse, Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship in the spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, Paul is inviting them to share in the same doctrine, to believe in the same Christ and to continue to believe in the same Christ. This is the intimacy of fellowship, which we enjoy in the church. Maintaining the same love, 
united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is the goal that the apostles have in writing the New Testament. We could have ended with the Gospels if we just wanted to get people saved. But the epistles were written extensively for the purpose of growing up believers, growing up those who are saved so that we can enjoy, too, the intimacy of fellowship with the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you saw fit to send your Son, taking on the flesh of mankind so that he could die on our behalf, so that he could raise us up in him so that we might have fellowship with you. We thank you and we praise you for this fellowship, and we pray that we might walk by the Spirit and maintain that fellowship. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.